welcome on the barricades this is a podcast produced by eastern european journalists and academics i am your host maria ternat and with me as usual the co-host of the show the bulgarian-born polish journalist boyan stanislavski thank you for being here with us And again, we have somebody very, very interesting and informed, Mark Sloboda, international security analyst, commentator to various political media outlets, a former U.S. naval officer that is currently residing in Russia. Uh, He is a former lecturer uh, at Moscow State University, and he also taught at London School of economics. Do you think the Russians finally learned their lesson that they have to invest more in soft power? Sure. I, I, it's, I, I think hopefully they have. I mean, um, uh, unfortunately, there will be people that probably come out of this and saying, look how effective hard power was. <laughs> um, you know, the weapon of last resort. Um, you know, Russians' ideas are not grand universalisms, right? Um, So, I mean, to a large extent, of course, there is the Banderite ideology of West Ukraine, but that is dovetailed right into this whole, you know, freedom, democracy, as absurd as it is to combine liberalism with Banderism. That has been the Maidan project since 2013, right? To, to fit them together. Um, that was actually the same project that was intended in Russia. At some point, there was a realization that all of these liberal parties in Russia, you know, have no real support in the country. And they certainly don't have any muscles on the streets. They're not going to, you know, stage a Maidan and overthrow the Russian government. But hey, How about those nationalists, those ethnic Russian nationalists? They hate Putin, too. They hate the multi-ethnic, multi-confessional federation. So if we combine them together with the liberals, then maybe... We get Navalny. Navalny, exactly. Exactly. Project Navalny, right? That is very, very intentional. It did not work in Russia because the ethnic nationalists in Russia are not strong enough. They're not in numbers. Yeah, sure. There's knee jerk racism and, you know, the standard, uh, you know, othering in Russia that you find everywhere. But it's not as strong as it was. Not so politicized, maybe. Yes. But in Ukraine, it worked, I think, better than even their expectations. Mm -hmm. And now... Odessa, do you think that um, I have some friends that yeah. suggest that maybe Odessa is very important for the Russians sure. and they would yeah. like to to take yeah. it and yes and they suggest they also want to take it because a lot of um crime goes on there a lot of business underground business and I, I don't think they want it for the crime but yeah that, I mean that but maybe help. they want it for that too also because it's a that's, hard that's more for cynical us. than me Maria that's more <laughs> cynical than me uh, that's pretty hard um yeah definitely I mean I I don't think that anyone on the Russian side conceives of a future partition of ukraine and when i say future right i'm not talking the conflict is going to be open over next year right i'm i'm russia is prepared for a five to ten year war at the minimum right they think this is going to go on 
mm-hmm. until and there may be ceasefires there there may be you know temporary breaks in the combat there may be uh episodes of diplomacy but you know those things are very fragile all right and they're often used simply to bide time uh and there may be peace for a year or two right uh, but it will until russia is satisfied with the final borders and i think eventually it will hopefully in the the shorter term because i have some family in odessa as well uh, <laughs> who you know have not been enjoying life since 2014 and are living very very quietly um but i think that is the majority in odessa i think there is a russian speaking russian leaning uh majority still in odessa you know uh, and and we saw the hope extinguished there with the uh the odessa massacre yeah. you know the, the burning in the trade union building but uh, you know uh, i think it still is embers there that that the area can be and, and must be liberated and from a geopolitical and military perspective it's not just that that is a part that should be with us but that must be with us mm-hmm. i think it will be a priority for russia to ensure that that the black sea at least the whole northern coast uh, falls within their purview right uh that the the future rump ukraine is a landlocked one mm-hmm. um so there's both the odessa should be i mean it was founded by catherine the great right yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i wonder yeah, what right. the romanians are going to say when they can see when they start seeing the you know the kind of the Yeah, the territorial corridor, like through Odessa to Transnistria. It's not done yet because the U.S. also realizes that this is eventually. This is why the 101st Airborne is right across the border in Romania. There, Mm. they want to preserve Odessa, presuming the logical course of the war that uh, you know eventually things will turn so strongly that kiev it looks in danger and and everything they will want to preserve it and that is why the 101st airborne is there they are you know a a mobile light they can be put into odessa probably in less than 24 hours as a human tripwire force And where they're there to stabilize peacekeeping troops, to stabilize the situation, right? I see that as the single most dangerous point of this conflict, right? If if Poland and the U.S. eventually send troops into West Ukraine, right, as some type of safe zone or or peacekeeping mission, whatever they call it, Russia will yell and scream and threaten and start making comments about nukes that mean nothing, right? That's all hot air and bluster. But at the end of the day, they'll be like, yeah, but they took off that off our hands and we don't have to worry about do we go into West Ukraine uh, or not later but odessa is a different matter an entirely a different matter and if the u.s puts u.s or u.s and romanian troops or whatever in odessa that is the biggest potential world war three moment in my mind very interesting yes russia will not accept the u.s naval base in odessa there's Mm. there's no possible way they can accept that uh besides which you know the whole 
again, Odessa founded by Catherine the Great, you know, the majority of the people there being Russian speaking, Russian leaning, you know, the, 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 there's the whole strategic aspect of that situation as well. And that may be two or three years down the line very mm. easily because Russia suffered a big setback in that direction when they chose to withdraw from Kherson city, right? Now they have to make a contested Dnieper crossing, which is tough, uh, you know, no matter what condition the Kiev regime military is at that point, it would probably be easier to uh, go across further north, right? You know, even down from a, a, an incursion uh, from Belarus through Kiev uh, and then take Odessa from the north. Okay, yeah. Tell me, tell me, what do you think about potential of Belarusian army army's potential involvement in the whole thing? Because I keep hearing Belarusian officials, including the president of the uh, of Belarus, saying that no, 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 no. Like we're not going there. Like we're providing support. We're providing this and that. And we, of course, you know, we are with our brothers, Russians, and yeah, of course. But no, we're not going to get involved. And they, you know, all those who are claiming that we're going to get involved, provocators, and so on and so forth. So, is this is this really is it is this the real manifestation of a genuine sentiment or a genuine manifestation of a real sentiment? I should say, uh, or, or is it just uh, is it just like you know, if if the president of the Russian Federation requests this intervention that it'll it will happen yeah i mean it's a it's a question of of leverage and usefulness and and i don't think that lukashenko has any intention of sending belarusian troops in um i don't think it will happen i think that first of all that would be seen as a major escalation by nato as far mm -hmm. as the russian from the very beginning they have i think naively been trying to signal limited intentions and limited escalation in NATO. If you go back to how they prevented the DNR and LNR from expanding mm -hmm. back in 2014 and 2015, yeah, you can. Well, they had to yeah. apologize for it afterwards yeah, and say yeah. that we, we should have finished it off. All we should have finished, right? They yeah. should have at the time, right? I agree. And I said the same at the time, uh, but they they wanted to signal limited intentions. Even back then, other than Crimea, they intended to put Ukraine back together under terms of the Minsk agreement that, like the political arrangement in Bosnia-Herzegovina, would have prevented Ukraine from from joining NATO then. Right. Uh, that that would have you know, that would have been the model. That's what Russia was was looking for. Um uh, I, and I think they were naive uh, about, uh, you know, the Western intentions. Putin has always been uh, a bit of a, uh, a Zapodophile, you know, a West, yeah, yeah, yeah. particularly his... Having a soft spot for the West. Of Germany in particular, right, from his time there, right? And I think he trusted Merkel, which was moronic, <laughs> you know, in... in uh, I thought it was from the beginning, but now in retrospect, even Merkel has admitted that you know the whole purpose of the Minsk agreements was to build up a a powerful military, a NATO military, a proxy uh, in Ukraine. Uh, so I I think that you know there that hopefully that has been beaten out of the Russian government, uh, but I I think that Lukashenko still has enough room for maneuver that he's not going to get involved that nato would see that 
as a potential for Polish troops then moving into West Ukraine. There, there were all, you know, all kinds of conditions there. And to be, let's be honest, military experience matters, right? One of the reasons why the U.S. military is as strong as they are is not only, you know, the technology and the amount of money that has been, you know, the trillions of dollars that are thrown at to keep it that way, but because the military is in always being used, right? There's always some low level conflict at a minimum somewhere, sometimes two or three countries at a time that the U.S. military is engaged with, that they're getting people blooded on, that they're getting officers trained on, that they are correcting mistakes, right? That they're finding what works and what doesn't. That's that kind of combat experience is incredibly important. And China has, you know, already on paper, a large and powerful and growing military, uh, you know, with huge investment. When's the last time China fought a war? <laughs> you know, that's that's the Sino-Vietnam, right? You know, oh. decades ago. Uh, so uh, that combat experience really matters. And Russia has that experience now from starting, if you want to start with Chechnya, which still f- figures into the era, uh, and, and uh, then in uh, Syria, um, and in Georgia, uh, and you know, now, now, you know, Russia, if it's not complete, if it's Russia isn't defeated out of this, whatever the US, you know, geopolitical thinkers, the blob may have been thinking, the Russian military comes out of this, whatever they lose hardware terms, you know, casualties, and the casualties are much lower than the Western media is making them out to be. Uh, and BBC even proves that. Uh, But um, the Russian military comes out of this a much stronger and more capable beast than they were when this conflict started. Uh, But I think Belarus will largely stay out of it. I think Russian forces will use Belarus as a platform uh, to to launch, you know, not just standoff strikes, but almost certainly at some point, maybe not in the next few months, but at some point further uh, interventions in Ukraine from the north, right, which is in, in Ukrainian terms, the soft underbelly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't see Belarusian troops getting involved uh, unless NATO gets But Russian troops uh, sort of moving towards the uh, Ukrainian heartland from Belarus, that's possible. For- that's possible. That's, that's possible. possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you, you just said uh, that Russia, one way or another, unless they are defeated in some kind of humiliating manner, which is rather, well, not 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 really possible at the moment. I mean, it doesn't uh, seem like it is possible. It's unlikely. It's unlikely. Okay, yeah, thanks. So uh, they will emerge stronger, like yeah. militarily and in terms of self-confidence and in terms of and like the unity of the nation, all the rest of it. My wife but- and I were talking about this just the other day. What are the political changes mm-hmm. that will come out of a Russian, right? Of course, we talk about the opposite too. But considering, you know, eventually it seems most likely. Mm-hmm. What are the political changes that will occur in Russia in the long term uh, with with a victory? the The country will be more united, more patriotic than ever. Look, the shall we say the two hundred thousand liberals in the country they left. They're gone, right? They're not coming back. I also, by the way, question how many Ukrainians really want to return home now that they're in Europe? 
Yeah, yeah, like yeah, maybe, but, but you know, I, I still want to, but, but I want to ask this because vis-a-vis -vis the West, you know, yeah. the strength of Russia or the increasing strength of Russia and the kind of, you know, Russia reasserting its position on the world. And now closer to China and Iran than yeah. ever mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly, which is I a mean, historic, absolutely. Russia and Iran yeah. are now actively military cooperating, right? In the last few weeks, we have seen Israel conduct strikes in Iran that at least Netanyahu says they were against weapons that are being, you know, against factories, against weapon depots Drones. that are being mm -hmm. supplied to to uh, Russia in Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. They they claim that that was help for Ukraine. Now, th th there's a question of, you know, how real that is, but they're saying it, right? Uh, you know, multiple high-level Israeli officials have said that. That is huge because mm -hmm. that means that the conflict, at least rhetorically, is no longer restricted to just Ukraine and to a lesser extent Russia, that the conflict has spread to the Middle East mm -hmm. with Israel attacking Iran and saying at least that it was over what's going on in Ukraine. That is huge, right? If anyone is, you know, there are still possibilities that this, and very real possibilities that at some point, that this could blow up and drag more and more countries into it. You know, the World War III scenario that Soros and Noriel Rubini and, and you know, numerous others uh, have, have talked about. It is, I mean, I still think that it's hopefully unlikely, but the percentage is growing. It's not shrinking. Mm -hmm. uh, and this could be, the, you know, one of the first steps. We could already be in the early stages of World War III, and now Israel is attacking Iran and at least saying that it's because of the conflict in Ukraine with Iran on the Russian side and Israel, even if muted support in, in, in you know, at least in military hardware terms uh, for the regime in Kiev. I think a lot of people have not been talking about how significant yes. That is. Okay. I completely agree because that were exactly my thoughts when I saw that strike that was against, against the, the factory of the drones that uh, yeah. Iran is uh, giving to, to Russia. And I said, wow, <laughs> this is really dangerous because the, um, the Israelis are very fearful at, that, at this point that Russia might give finally Iran the technology to build a nuclear weapon or more weapons and even more weapons from well, Russia. They're, they're afraid of conventional weapons. Yes, yes. They are afraid that Russia, Russia has already given the, the S-300 air defense system to the Syrian government, but they've never let them turn it on to use against Israel. And they have an S-400 system there to protect their own forces. That covers most of Israel in air defense terms, right? They can shoot down any Israeli fighter planes and do not underestimate how good Russian air defense is. It is the best in the world, right? And that is a part of their integrated network. Israel is terrified by that. That's mm -hmm. why they're not providing the Iron Dome or the yes. Hawk system or anything else to Ukraine. And they say that openly, right? But Russia could also provide the S-400 to Iran. They're already providing the uh, part of the drone deal is to provide the Su-35 
to Iran, right? Russia gets the designs. I think it's more the designs than the actual physical production, but the designs for the cheap but effective and sanction-proof Shahed 136 slash Garan 2, but also the Arash and uh, uh, several uh, Iranian also cheap but effective ballistic missile models. Uh, that that Russia can use to take out, you know, stationary targets that aren't moving anywhere, like infrastructure, electrical mm-hmm. infrastructure in Ukraine. And what did they giving Iran? The Su-35, and Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States are very unhappy about that state of affairs. Yeah. That is a huge degree of military cooperation that has never occurred before between Russia and Iran before. Yeah, but for the end, can I just bring you back for a while to what you said about Russia emerging stronger from this conflict, whatever way it goes? Yes, I, mean, I however, also the, have the... a question about Russia. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so so my last question, and then, uh, uh, like, whatever the, the final partition line, partition border is going to be, uh, Russia, in one way or another, is going to emerge stronger in term, in all those terms that you listed out. And, and then, you know, how does it look vis-a-vis the West? Because you said uh, during our conversation previously that, well, it's all, regardless of... of, of how uh, things are on the ground, militarily speaking. It's all great for the military-industrial complex in the U.S. They're all floating in coins now or in gold and whatever. They're very happy opening champagne bottles because it's going to be, you know, orders and orders and orders from Europe and forever. And then, you know, you get this 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 agitation in the Western media that NATO is stronger than ever. Everything is fantastic. You know, uh, Sweden and Norway are now going to join NATO. Norway has even participated, according to Seymour Hersh's material, in blowing up Nord Stream 2. Uh, so, you know, they're already committed. Everything's going fantastic. And, uh, you know, all the governments in Europe across the political spectrum, like the leftist government in Spain, the right-wing government in Poland, they're all giving weapons. It's all great. We're, and, you know, even this grandstanding during the uh, State of the Union address, which uh, where, you know, Biden was saying that the allies are spending more, they're, you know, standing up like for, you know, all those things. And I wonder, like, is is there a way for the West? I mean, I realize that a lot of it is just, you know, trying to to uh, a lot of it is just propaganda. OK, in, in simple terms. But I wonder, is there a way for the West to also emerge stronger from this oh, sure. in some ways? Sure, sure. Okay. And so, you know, in, in some ways, absolutely, right? Um, and always, you know, the, this argument is made, again, by the blob uh, at points in their arguments about what is happening in Ukraine. It's all really about Taiwan and China, mm-hmm. right? They keep drawing these parallels that China... Uh, if we if we lose Ukraine, then China will try to take Taiwan, right? You know, even though technically even the U.S. acknowledges that Taiwan is part of China, right? And the one China policy, government in Beijing, and although we all know that that's a fiction, uh, that that you know whose days are are numbered at this point, uh, but um, the U.S. they have their this is just a prequel for them, mm-hmm. right? Have you uh, heard? Um, it, it this was uh it made the western mainstream media and they didn't even seem to care about it uh there was a us air force general who just sent a memo out to his troops and obviously this was made public and it was intended to be made public well that in 2025 we're going to have a war with china right? yes that we're going to that we're going to be at war with china and that the 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 key to that is he said 
unrepentant lethality and to prepare yourself mentally and militarily, uh, you should be shooting at a target of a Chinese person every day and aim for the head. <laughs> I'm like, my God, these people are insane sociopaths. Wow. Yeah. Right? I mean, you really I'm are. A, I'm a realist, a cynic, and, a, and, and at times a hawk. But that's a sociopath, right? I mean, that you think you're in some kind of zombie apocalypse video game or something like that? I mean, seriously, that's the way they think. This is just a prelude. And they get all of Europe now united behind them, more economically and militarily dependent on the U.S. than ever, so that they'll be able to pivot from this, whatever way it ends up, towards China in the very short-term future. My my fear is now that what happens to Russia if it wins? Because maybe there is a potential of risk there. Maybe sure. Putin will get encouraged and due to the propaganda and due to the opportunistic people willing to lionize him and to produce disgusting propaganda saying how great he is, he will lose it and become the lunatic that everybody is afraid of. I, I don't think you, I, I honestly don't think you have to worry about that. And there's always. Even with victory, whatever that is termed, uh, you know, let, let's say victory is a, a good prospect of, of uh, all of East Ukraine uh, in one form or another becoming part of the Russian sphere. That East Ukraine will be completely destroyed, right? You see mm-hmm. what's happening in Mariupol and Bakhmut, right? In order to save the village, Russia is destroying it. This was always a big part of the problem of having this war be fought in East Ukraine in 2023 instead of in West Ukraine in 2014. Russia has to pay to rebuild all of East Ukraine. That is a, and presumably at some point to bring it up to the Russian standard of living. That is a huge expense. That is why the Russian uh, uh, finance ministry was so terrified about the prospect of having to pay for even the Donbass in 2014 and 2015. Russia is going to, if, again, they come out of this victorious, and if it's a substantial territorial you know, gain, even if out of defensive intentions in, in East Ukraine, they are going to have taken more onto their plate than they can easily absorb. And Russia is going to be very, I think after this, happy with themselves, but also very glutted and having to absorb and bring up Ukraine for decades into the future. And that's, you know, on top of it, there will always be a degree of destabilization. And even if 80% support, 10 or 20% will be violently against there will be instability there will be insurrection you know uh i don't honestly think yes i i think that there will be a resurgence of uh shall we say i don't want to say it's not ethnic nationalism because that wouldn't even make any sense but you know russian great power politics as a result of that 
I, I think there will be, but I think it will by necessity be tempered by the economic realities of this. I think Russia will be economically better at the end of all of this from being severed economically from the West and the West no longer able to weaponize the global <laughs> financial sector, you know, the the uh the two-way street of energy supplies going back way forth of interdependence and so forth. I think it's better than for Russia. I think Russia should concentrate on China and India and, and uh, uh, Iran and, and all of their, their economic and social and political focus should be to the East. Uh, but, you know, of course there's going to be a, a cost in growth potential. Uh, from being disconnected from the West. Um, and that, that growth potential, of course, is going to go both ways. But right. uh, how is how is West, how is Europe going to pay to reconstruct Western Ukraine? Yeah, which is it's it's already making those plans, which is ridiculous, of course. Yeah. But then uh, what about the psychological effect that it could have on the West, on the Western elites, Western establishments? You know, uh, if, if Russia comes out, as you said, like comes out victorious from it to the extent that, you know, the West cannot bear with this, like that it's too much for them. Do you think it's going to lead to some kind of, because you said it yourself, I mean, some of those people are simply obsessed, psychopathic, maybe whatever. So it might lead to some kind of mental breakdown you know, on, a, <laughs> on a mass scale. Right. There's either two ways that could go. It could, I think it's a less likely scenario, but it could lead to some honest reflection right in american and that was and, very optimistic that was the most optimistic thing i heard most, from I you i with I the most optimistic you. right where they think huh you know maybe maybe uh you know we're overstretched maybe we are imperially overstretched maybe we shouldn't be kicking things off with china right after this you know uh, uh, so uh, so <laughs> forth that's the optimistic reading of course the less optimistic reading is out of spitefulness and anger and and they um, you know, a, a need now out of insecurity to prove their military might, uh, you know, kick things off even exactly. faster and bigger with China. Right. That is the other way. I don't. Or I don't they might lead. They might lead. Maybe I don't know Poland or Romania Iran, or some other country you know, or, to do yeah. something stupid. Yeah, I, I, I don't. Unfortunately, that's the more likely scenario. Human nature being what human nature is, and the mm. U.S. being what the U.S. is, they mm. they don't take defeat very well. No. Um, so. And they're in it for good. I mean, they 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 seem to be conveying the message that either we lead the world, or the world doesn't make sense without it. Like yeah, or the world yeah. burns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably right, to say the least. There is a question that's been on my mind since I, since I first met you. And I have to ask this question. Sorry, sure. Brian, for interrupting. Look, I know that the military personnel in general are so faithful to their country. So I imagine there must have been something very, very disappointing for you to go from the United States to Russia and not even to go there, but to support what's going on. So if you can share, of course, if you want, if it's too personal that I don't mind uh, you refusing to answer in the question, but what was the, the something so disappointing for you that you took this decision? 
yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not some kind of Snowden defector or some kind of spy or double agent or anything like that. that. That would be very nice and romantic. But the truth of the matter is that I actually immigrated to Russia uh, in a very long process, similar to getting a green card in the United States. Uh, that was despite having, um, you know, a, a Russian Crimean uh, wife, which did make it easier than it would have been. Um, so, um, yeah, I grew disenchanted uh, uh, with uh, the U.S. military and U.S. foreign policy uh, back uh, when I was in the military. And uh, when uh, I was participating in, you know, uh, military actions in Iraq uh, and Serbia. Um, and uh, it, that was when my, you know, big... Um, shall we say, disenchantment, again, uh, with, uh, you know, the U.S. policy of uh, promoting uh, uh, U.S.-led Western global hegemony and military primacy around the world when, uh, you know, I became fully aware of what the U.S. was doing in those two locations. Uh, afterwards, um, I, you know, pursued my um, uh, university degree in international relations and security policy, and I became even more aware of what the U.S. is doing all around the world and everywhere, you know, from Palestine to Iran and South America, you know, everywhere, right? Uh, and uh, it it is, you know, primarily for uh, reasons of my specialty in international relations, what the U.S. is doing around the world uh, in um uh, you know, foreign and, and military affairs uh, in the pursuit of hegemony. Um, it's not anything, you know, personal, uh, you know, in particular, uh, other than that. Um, I do come from a Slavic mutt background that includes Russians and uh, Slovaks, and, and probably, I think, one Pole, Boyan, but generally my family tries to pretend that that didn't happen. Um <laughs> No offense. I feel you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, everywhere I come from in, in rural uh, 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 bum F uh, coal country, Pennsylvania, uh, everyone in my hometown is Slavic of, of one variety or another. Right. Poles, uh, Russians, Ukrainians, Slo you know, uh, Slovaks, uh, Czechs, everyone. Right? right. I'm mostly Bulgarian. So, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I just live here. Right. OK, um, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, so thanks. Thanks a lot for sharing. Also, this. my yeah. wife. I I met my wife and married okay. her. She's Crimean. Uh, from from you know she's Russian from Crimea. So, um, you know that certainly helped make me make help me make the decision to leave the U.S. behind and and move uh, permanently immigrate to Russia. Yeah, well, but thanks for sharing that because I think it puts certain things. I mean, it puts your analysis in picture as to like you, you, you're not on any private war with the U.S. It's not your personal revenge or anything like that. No, you just, no, no. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, and no, I, I had, a, I got out with a, an honorable discharge, and and actually, I turned down a a big, uh, you know, six figure uh, bonus offer of of reenlistment. You know, as a nuclear reactor operator, and and uh, the money was certainly not worth it to me at that point. Okay, maybe you could tell me: Is there any help for Bulgaria showing political sanity and remembering what part of the world they should be part of? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, I I don't think I, so. I'd like no. Look, I'd like to be optimistic, okay, about Bulgaria in certain aspects because uh, Bulgaria is a bit of a different society from from the other kind of you know. Uh, 
Visegrad, for example, society, it's different. It belongs to this orthodox bow. I mean, it's closer to, to Russia, to Ukraine, to Belarus, Serbia. It has, you know, the 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 majority of the population. I'm talking, you know, throughout all age groups, like conscious people, of course, I'm talking 15 uh, years old and older, they support Russia either on the basis of their emotions or either on the basis of their kind of political understanding and perception. The problem only is that the political establishment has nothing to do with those sentiments. I mean, they are, you know, handpicked by the American embassy, put there, and they are and they are given a concrete and specific mission. That's been the case for the last two years. And then the mission is accomplished, the government falls. And then there is a new round of elections and all the rest of it. So this is, and we even have a joke that the central uh, central uh, electoral committee or whatever, like the, this this body that oversees elections, they are already done with the, uh, with the calculation of the votes. They're only waiting for the voting to actually come uh, occur uh, because things are so unstable that it almost doesn't make sense to even have elections but well you know there is a bit of of hope a small ray of hope in a sense that you know there's growing discontent within the bulgarian public with the whole with, with everything that's happening and that's on top of 30 years of economic civilizational if you like downgrade and there are people emerging who are kind of people leaders okay nationalistic kind of patriotic but also left-leaning in certain aspects who are trying to make their uh you know to uh to to become part of the of, of the political mainstream political life and to represent those emotions those political emotions in the society and they stand a chance because unlike the other parties which are not parties because precisely they don't represent anything and anyone they That's do the represent yeah. something and they might be you know they might get elected the problem is okay you get elected and then then and what then That's, what? Then what? That's like... what what then what then hungry right mm. now I'm not a huge fan in terms yeah. of domestic politics of Victor Orban. Yeah, I mean, right. In terms of foreign policy, I think he he's is the only adult in the room. He's the only region. adult in the room. He's the only statesman in all of Europe. I know, I know. He has reasserted Hungarian sovereignty in the face of both Brussels and the US. So, whatever else you may think of him, and I think a lot, you know, again, against him and on, on other terms. You have to admire him. And and I think it's probably very hard for Bulgarian politicians to look to Hungary as yeah. an example of what could be. But And, you know, we had a guest from Hungary and she explained that somehow Orban is doing the game of Germany, that whatever Germany cannot say in public, Orban is doing, you know, it for them because they are hugely supported economically by Germany. So maybe yeah. behind the success and the yeah, but uh, let me let me just make lie something else right. because let me just make one more remark with regards to Orban because I think the, this way is of course this could be an example this could be a reference point at least at the very least but the, the the thing is only that you know Orban Viktor Orban is a seasoned politician with a lot of experience and he's a real politician he understands politics as interests responsibilities and all the rest of it and there are some people who try to mimic him like our Kaczynski you know the petty wannabe dictator of the of the internal political process here and you know it's just like he is exactly too 
petty, too small, too incapacitated. He's just a poor copy of Orban. And I'm just afraid that, you know, uh, again, I don't agree with many of the ideological concepts that Orban uh, has subscribed to, but, you know, we, we, we don't have caters of that scale in other uh, European countries. And I think this is a very, very serious problem, but perhaps we could discuss it, you know, in the in another program. Uh, yes. Thank you for bringing it up. And thank you once again, Mark, for uh, being here with us and for answering all our questions, for your insights and comments. And I hope to have you back on uh, in a couple of weeks. Uh, all the very best to everyone. Stay healthy and keep fighting. We'll see you in the next segment. Fighting Bye. for peace.